Ever since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our, Our teaching team, team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion. To which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to, to expand, expand in faith, faith hope, and love. hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because, because they, they anchor us in something, something which can, can hold us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere we exist to join god's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere we hope you enjoy this week's teaching we hope you enjoy this week's teaching we hope you enjoy this week's teaching this morning's second scripture is from matthew chapter 10 verses 24 through 39 and we appreciate children so please don't go please don't go oh she's gonna go um sorry A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave to be like the master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs on your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others... I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and mother and one foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. The word of the Lord. My name is Dan Cook, and I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Genesis. Thank you for being here this morning on this uh, rainy Sunday. I didn't, I was beginning to wonder if water was ever going to fall from the sky again. It's been so darn dry, so we'll take it, we'll take it. Thank you uh, to those of you who are with us here in the chapel this morning. It's good to see you all. And thank you to those of you who are joining us online. It is good to have you as part of this community as well. Um, We are in the season of ordinary time in the liturgical calendar that we follow here at Genesis. And in that ordinary time, we focus on the Spirit indwelling the believer and empowering the church to engage in God's redemptive mission in the world. That's what it says right in the front of your liturgy there when we talk about this particular season. It's that season where our mission statement here at Genesis, that we, you know, we're here to become ordinary apprentices of Jesus who are learning to love God, ourselves, and others wholeheartedly. That 
mission statement, that idea of what discipleship is, this is the season where that comes to the fore more than any other. And if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Kara talking about discipleship, talking about the difficulties and the complications that come along with it. If you didn't hear that message, I strongly encourage you to go back and take a listen. It was, was excellent because it, it really highlighted the importance of relationship and the importance of community. Trying to do discipleship all on our own is terribly, terribly difficult. But we don't have to do that. That's not, how, that's not how it's designed. It's designed to be done in community and with each other and being able to support and encourage one, each, each other through it. Uh, and not to give you, you know, terribly bad news, but this week's passage brings us more complications. <laughs> it's, a, it's more complex. Will was, uh, reached out to me during the week and when he saw the passage that I was going to be preaching from and said, really? Yeah. <laughs> you, you pick this one? Because <laughs> there's about 15 different directions you could go, and he was curious as to which way I was going to take it. And um, yeah, yeah, it's a complicated one. But discipleship is a complicated thing, and I, and I don't want to avoid that. I don't want to tell people it's all sunshine and rainbows because it's not. And that's not what Jesus teaches us. And we see that in this very passage itself. There's a couple of different ways that I want to approach this to start with. Um, And they all both have to do with this book, (laughs) with this library actually of 66 different books. There are texts in here that are complex, that are difficult, that challenge us, that sometimes we're not really sure what to do with. And the temptation is to just skip right past them and move on to other things, right? Because there's some other great stuff in here as well, right? But I think part of discipleship is learning the process and leaning into the process of wrestling with those texts that make us uncomfortable. And there's a couple of different examples of that in this particular passage. First of all, let's start with verses 24 and 25. I want to read those again for you. Right out of the gate, it says, A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like the master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus here obviously is trying to draw an analogy, use a metaphor. Jesus is the teacher. Jesus is the master. We are the students. We are the slaves. How do we feel about that mention of slavery? Terrible. Not a fan. It's very casual, isn't it? Very matter of fact, it doesn't really seem to be a hint of condemnation in there, does it? That makes, I don't know about you, but it makes me uncomfortable when I read that. Especially given the fact that we just celebrated Juneteenth on Monday, which of course is, you know, a celebration of the final portion of this country after the Civil War, hearing about and having enforced the Emancipation Proclamation. Two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was made, Union troops finally got to this last portion of Texas and said, no, we're not going to do slavery anymore. You all are free. So when we see this text, when we see this mention of slavery that seems on the surface to be very casual, it can rankle us, right? And while the type of chattel slavery that we're talking about when we talk about Juneteenth and when we talk about the Civil War, while that kind of slavery doesn't exist in our culture anymore, Slavery still exists. I looked it up this week, and if you count things like forced labor and forced marriage and human trafficking, which sadly still is a problem in this country, there's something on the order of 50 million people in this world that are still under the evil of slavery. 50 million. Think about that. It's an eye-popping number. So we have to still talk about slavery. We have to still wrestle with it. We have to still, as Christians, decide what we're going to do about it. And Maybe on the surface, it seems obvious 
that as Christians, as people who are followers of Jesus, ordinary apprentices of Jesus, people who are learning to love each other, that, you know, standing up against slavery, decrying slavery, declaring it a moral outrage, seems like a pretty obvious thing we should do. Anybody want to argue that? I didn't think so. So the question then becomes, if that's what we're supposed to do, if we're supposed to step up and say slavery is wrong, it needs to be eradicated, why doesn't the Bible do that? How does the Bible have this casual mention of slavery without any form of condemnation whatsoever? There are scholars, academics, mainly secular ones, but not all of them, who will say that far from condemning slavery, the Bible actually endorses it. And how could any good and loving God inspire a text that at the very least normalizes this institution of pure evil, slavery? How can that happen? That's a fair question. And so here we are, ordinary apprentices, trying to be better disciples of Jesus, and we run headlong into this text that seems to treat slavery like it's not a very big deal. There's a ton of mention of slavery in the Old Testament. And plenty of it seems to be coming from God saying, Israelites, take these folks as slaves, take those folks as slaves, it's fine. We have to get almost all the way into the book of Philemon in the New Testament before Paul brushes up against the notion of the human depravity that is slavery. But even then, he doesn't call for the direct abolition of the institution. So what do we do? What do we do with that? Part of discipleship, I think, is learning how to address texts like this, is really learning how to dig into biblical texts and break them down and try to understand what's going on, understanding their original context, understanding the original communities that they were written to, understanding the idea of progressive revelation. I joke all the time that the best thing the Protestant Reformation ever did was put a Bible in everybody's hands in their language and say, you can read this and you can have a personal relationship with God. And the worst thing the Protestant Reformation ever did was put a Bible in everybody's hands in their language and say, you can read this and you can have a personal relationship with God. I'm a huge fan of everybody having a Bible in their language. Don't get me wrong for a second. I think that's critical to all of our discipleships, to all of our apprenticeships, having access to that text. But along with that, we need the tools and we need the knowledge and we need the information about how to approach those texts. There are texts in the Bible that are nothing like what we are used to today here in the 21st century. If we, don't, if we try to take our current context and just layer it over on top of biblical context, it gets to be all kinds of problematic. One of those ideas, one of those tools that I think is crucial is understanding the notion that God meets people, all people, where they're at, individually and culturally. There's all kinds of accommodations in the Bible. There's, just as Jesus took on all of our sin on the cross, I believe that God takes on all of our human foibles as we go through time, as we go through progressive revelation. I believe absolutely that the Bible is an inspired document. I don't think God downloaded it into human beings' brains as they wrote it down. I think there's also a significant amount of humanity in the text. And when you have a significant amount of humanity in anything, there are going to be mistakes, there are going to be errors, there are going to be problems. But the beauty of the biblical text is to see God working with and through those problems, taking on the sin of humanity because that's what God's always been like and saying, no, I'll wear that one, that's okay. 
We have to understand that, that revelation is progressive, that the way that Moses understood God is not the way that, uh, that Abraham understood God before him, is not the way that Isaiah understood God after him, is not the way that John the Baptist understood God. Revelation is progressive. We learn more as we go. And while Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, our understanding of that revelation progresses and we grow and we learn. That's the whole idea behind discipleship. But it means we have to wrestle with texts like these. Now, I'll venture into the realm of pure opinion, and I want to highlight this. This is not the Lord has saith unto me. This is my opinion. But I believe that a lot of these biblical texts were written at a period of time where God understood that humanity was not ready to draw a hard line on the issue of slavery yet. And that's reflected in the text. Now, here, today, humanity is absolutely ready to draw that hard line and has drawn that hard line, even though evil keeps trying to cross it. And as evil keeps trying to cross it, God calls on us as peacemakers, as apprentices of Jesus, to stand up and say, no, this has to stop. We have to fight against this. This is pure evil, period, paragraph. It doesn't matter that this text seems to treat it normally. That text was written thousands of years ago. This is where we are now. This is the idea of following Jesus. This is what we do as Christians, and we draw that line. Amen? So we wrestle with difficult texts. We wrestle with texts that seem to normalize things that to us seem abhorrent. We also wrestle with texts. The temptation is to take our current context, as I said earlier, and layer it right on top of the biblical text. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it really doesn't work. Sometimes the temptation to do it seems obvious, and it's a trap. And that's, I think, what we're dealing with here as well. Because you have Matthew writing this gospel of Jesus to a community that, is, that was, at the time, very much under persecution from the government under which they lived. But let's be clear. Christians today, in this culture, in our culture, are not under persecution, period, paragraph. They're not. They're not. There are people around the world who are, Christians around the world who are under persecution. But in our country, Christians have access, nearly unfettered access, to every single lever of power, political and cultural, that there is. We just do. All 45 presidents in our history lay claim to some form of Christianity. The number of Christians in the United States Congress hovers somewhere in the upper 80s when it comes to a percentage. We've just seen two different stories of major corporations having their bottom line seriously affected by people who say they follow Christ because they didn't like their marketing campaigns. Budweiser and Target. You know the story. So any Christian who comes and says, oh, we're being persecuted here in America, is either, I'm sorry, significantly misinformed, or is trying to spin some kind of political rhetoric. That's just the truth. So we can't take our current context and layer it right on top of this Matthean context, right? We're not under political persecution in this country. But Matthew's audience was absolutely under persecution by the government. And so here he, Matthew has Jesus reassuring them that no matter the persecution they face, God is with them and it's going to be okay, offering that reassurance. So the question then becomes, if we can't just put ourselves in that audience's place, can we draw anything from, from that particular reassurance? I think there's three things we can draw from there. I really do. Thing number one, is that the prosperity gospel is junk. 
flat out. Because Jesus says here in this text, if you look again, verses 24 and 25, when he's talking about, uh, especially in verse 25, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, if they're calling Jesus Beelzebul, the government is persecuting Jesus, what do, they think, what do you think they're going to do to you, the follower? Or you look at verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. These are the kinds of things Jesus' followers in Matthew's time were having to deal with. So Jesus is saying flat out, follow me, it's going to be a bumpy road. There's going to be issues. There just are. Even though we may not be facing the kind of persecution they did today, there's still issues that are going to come up from following Jesus. There just are. But the prosperity gospel would tell you that following Jesus faithfully, and perhaps more importantly, giving to their churches, will bring you health and will bring you wealth and will bring you, wait for it, prosperity. But what are those churches, what does that type of preaching have to say to somebody who follows faithfully, who gives faithfully, and then the bad things happen? And then the cancer diagnosis comes. And then the layoffs come. And then some sort of financial hardship comes, whatever it is. What do those churches have to say to those people after saying, no, Jesus wants you to be rich and wants you to be healthy and wants you to be prosperous? What do they say? Boom, believe harder. Give us more money. money. That's exactly it. That's exactly what they say. And that's toxic. That is toxic to people's faith. And I reject it utterly. And Christ here rejects it utterly. No, there's going to be bumps in the road, period. So that's a bright, shiny example of things on the pole from it, isn't it? But it's the truth. The second thing we can draw from this is that that bumpy road, that following Jesus, is going to bring us into conflict at times with structures and with institutions who become more concerned with protecting themselves than serving the people they were designed to serve. And those can take a lot of different forms. There's a uh, former professor of theology at Columbia Theological Seminary, Charles Cusar, and he said that the advent of the new order Jesus brings, so radical in its message of love and freedom, challenges the structures and arrangements of the old order. We forget at times how radical Jesus' message truly is. But Jesus' message of love and freedom often and consistently challenges structures and arrangements of the old order. And that old order can include governments and public institutions. Or, as we see later in this passage, it can mean family structures. Or it can mean the church, big C. Have you guys ever had a thing where you read a piece somebody wrote and instantly recognized that the thought in some vague form had been bouncing around your head and here somebody came along and crystallized it perfectly? That's annoying, isn't it? Why didn't I think of that? There's a theologian by the name of Denise Thorpe, and I had that experience this week, because she writes that no place of pain is so dark or so scary that God will not go there with us. A child ostracized for being different, A woman passed over because she refuses to mislead clients. Nuns hiding Jewish children from the Nazis. Churches providing sanctuary. Men and women protesting in outrage when children are tear gassed at our borders. All claiming with body and action that when the church, the state, the nation, or any other authority fails to respect the glory of God's creation in every person, loyalty to that authority must be rebuffed. 
the church, when the church, the state, the nation, or any other authority fails to respect the glory of God's creation in every person, even the people we don't like, that authority must be rebuffed. Can you even imagine for a moment, those of you who are regulars here, can you even imagine for a moment myself, Pastor Kara, Will, Pastor Allie, whoever it is, standing up here and trying to tell you, hey, don't worry about those pesky words that Jesus said. Vote for who we tell you to. Don't worry about those pesky things that Jesus said. Ostracize those who we tell you to. Don't worry about those things that Jesus said, but act how we tell you to. Can you, I mean, can you for one second imagine any of us saying that? You all would bounce us out on our ears if we did that. And you should. Yeah. And you should. And yet that happens all over this country and churches, all the time. When the institution, when the structures start to protect themselves rather than the people they're designed to serve, we have a problem. And that happens in churches. Not just the Catholic Church, although they have some significant problems along those lines. But it happens in Protestant churches absolutely as well. I won't get into the Southern Baptist Conference and everything that's been going on, but it, it's... When you start protecting institutions over people, we've lost the plot. And so following Jesus, if we are going to be disciples, ordinary apprentices of Jesus, it will bring you into conflict with those institutions and what do we do in those times? Working together as a community, supporting each other, that's how we get through those times. And I understand there are people who I know and care about and who have studied this very, very closely and think, we got to blow the whole thing up. It just doesn't work anymore. And I understand that. I really do. I'm not there, but I understand how people get there. And I'm not there because of thing number three that we can draw from this particular passage. And that is this. No matter the resistance that we face as we follow Jesus, no matter what kind of obstacles get put in front of us, no matter what kind of systems or structures we bump into, God is going to be with us every single step of the way. Following Christ will lead you into situations where it feels like you're one person trying to hold back a tide. So I was studying this passage this week. I'm flashing back to that picture of that one singular man in the middle of Tiananmen Square standing in front of a tank saying no. A tank that could squash him like a bug. It feels like that sometimes. Like you're one person trying to hold back this massive, massive tide. And here's the rub. God doesn't promise that the tide's not going to come crashing down on you, that that tank won't go ahead and run over you. doesn't promise us that. What does God promise? Let's look again verses 29 to 31. Starting in verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs on all your heads are counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many, than many sparrows. God does not promise that that tide or that tank won't run you over. God does promise that the, like the sparrow, God is so famili intimately familiar with each and every one, one of us, so intimately present with each and every one of us, that no tide, no tank can drag us away from God's love and God's comfort and God's compassion and God's mercy and God's concern. Can't happen. Over and over again in this passage, Jesus says, do not be afraid. 
which does not mean do not experience fear. Kind of seems contradictory, but that's the truth. What Jesus is saying here is as you name that fear, as you recognize that fear, you can move beyond it. You can move through it. You can move even despite it. Because we know that the love of God and the concern of God and the comfort and mercy and justice of God goes with us, surrounds us in each and every moment. Every time we run into one of those structures, every time we run into one of those obstacles or that opposition, God is with us. God is moving. Even, and perhaps most especially, when it's hard to sense that God is there and doing it. That's that's the notion of faith. That's the work of the disciple. That's what being an ordinary apprentice is all about. So I've got good news and I've got bad news. The bad news is that our ordinary apprenticeship is hard. It's difficult. There are complications in this text. There are complications all through them. I just barely brushed up against one of them today. There are complications in that text, and we have to wrestle with those. And living out our discipleship is bumpy and messy and difficult, and there are obstacles and there is opposition, sometimes from the most inconvenient of places, our families, our friends, our church. Good news is we have tools and we have knowledge and we have each other to work through the complications in this text and to understand the context and understand the history of it. We have those things. We have them available to us. And the good news is that no matter what opposition we face, no matter what the obstacles are, when we run into the fear of those things, we can move through them. Because we have the support of each other, we have the support of our community, and we have the love and the compassion and the mercy and the grace of God that goes with us in every single moment. So I want to leave you with this question this morning. And again, this is from Denise Thorpe, who needs to get out of my head. But she says this, and she echoes what I was just saying, that the the call to fear not in the gospel is not a requirement to pretend like we don't feel fear. Here's the question. In the face of legitimate fear, what does it mean to trust God's love so deeply that we are free to lament and free to respond with faith in God's promises in the midst of that fear? What does it mean to trust God's love so deeply that we are free to lament and free to respond with faith in God's promises in the midst of that fear? That's what being an ordinary apprentice, that's what being a disciple is all about. And in this time of ordinary time, we pray that the Holy Spirit comes and empowers each and every one of us to lean into that love, to have that trust, to have that faith in God. And that's why we're here, to learn from each other, to support one of each other, to be ordinary apprentices of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If If you you find find yourself yourself nearby nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you have have any any questions questions or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscov.org.